What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and challenge you to start, finish or publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And as always, a huge thank you to uh, our bestseller academies and patrons on Patreon. These are the people who support us and keep this podcast on the road. If you want to find out more about the Academy and you get me and Mr. D's, your personal coaches and all that wonderful stuff, a great writing community, courses, all that groovy, groovy stuff, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. If you want to become a patron and get access to over 120 deep dives, you get them in the Academy too, by the way, uh, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you become a chart topper supporter, then you get access to those deep dives. And a big thank you to a couple of new patrons this week. Uh, budge up at the back of the bus, everyone. Make room, please, for Irene Hogarth and Jennifer Riddles. Irene, Jennifer, thank you so much for your support. You are absolute champions. Uh, for To support the podcast, just check out the links in the show notes. Mr. D, how are you today? I am doing great. We've got snow in Canada, Mr. Stay. You can see it. For anyone looking on YouTube, the snow has fallen. Um, and I used, I love snow as a kid, you know, that snow, it's like that magical white stuff. You wake up in the morning, it's like, oh wow, no school today. But you know, when you <laughs> live in Canada, people get quite grumpy about snow. <laughs> it's like yeah. in some parts of Canada, they have snow for like five months of the year and it's they're like, serious oh, snow there. Yeah. Not like the snow we got the, here. Yeah. The amount of people <laughs> I know who've done their back in shoveling snow, like you would not believe. And it's so, Yeah. So I'm hanging in there. I'm still the Brit in, in the magic of, of the snow of Canada. Um, well, in the UK, we've got we've got grey. Is that a thing? We've got totally. Grey. That's that's yeah. that's UK weather. <laughs> grey or cloudy on a good day, right? Yeah. yeah. What's a grey? Oh, but what isn't grey is a very special week that you've had, Mister Stay. You've you've had a big week, haven't you? Oh, I'm an old man. I've turned fifty. I'm officially a fifty year old. The weather. Yeah, yeah. Happy yeah. birthday, sir. How does it Thank feel? You. I'm, I'm invigorated. I'm just getting started. I mean, the last time Brilliant. I looked in the mirror, I felt about 32. So it's, um, know. you yeah. know, and I, I know people have asked about this. I am still meditating. You know, I'm doing <gasps> it. I'm doing a little, just little bits every day. It's very chill, Brilliant. usually mid-afternoon, just yeah. when everything is getting a bit too much, you know. Yeah, that's so, a good time to Yeah, do. you know, it's uh, it's all groovy, baby. Yeah, it's all right. brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. And um it's kind of mad, isn't it? Like like decade birthdays. Um, everyone's had them. At least if you're over 10 and listening to the show, you've had one. And <laughs> I, I flip-flop with decades. It's weird. Like I mourned my 30, like turning 30. 30 was weird. hard. What, 30 was, is the hardest. What is yeah. it about? Like you don't really, you think, you don't know that when you're a teen, but when you hit 30, you kind of like, the 20s is like that magical period in your life yeah. where you're just like, you you know, you've got, a lot of a lot of people have like you know no kids no mortgage none of the kind of 
the the things that kind of tie us down in life. And yeah, I I struggled with 30s. 30, 30, 30, you start thinking, I should have done something by now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Why am I further along? I should have achieved something. And I remember saying that to Claire and she said, well, you're happily married with two kids. I said, apart from that. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it goes without saying. Yes. yes. Exactly. And then 40s, 40s was like, that was a good, I found that was a good one. And then 50s for me, because... I turned 50 just a little bit before you, Miss. Just kept it very bit, quiet, yeah, didn't yeah, I? Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, 50s. Okay, leading up to 50s, uh, it was like, I can't quite get my head around it. It just like, because when you're younger and you think of someone turning 50, you think, that's really old, like that. <laughs> but, but what I thought of, the way that I flipped my entire being around it is I was thinking, you know what? How about taking the angle of just being so grateful to have had those 50 years? And yeah. and it's like, if you come from that perspective, it's like everything else is a bonus. And then I started thinking, it's great. It's I'm loving it. And literally within, I think it was on my birthday, I, it was leading up to it. I was like a bit kind of like, ooh. And a lot of my, a lot of our friends in the same yep. school year our as peers, us yep. checked in with them when they, a lot of them have been turning that decade birthday. And a lot of them just don't want to talk about it. They're like, yeah, better, better left said, you know, it's just, no, they, I love it, they, they shoving it down. So I love the fact that you're embracing it and, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's good. It's a good check-in in life, isn't it? Yeah. No, like I said, I feel like I'm just getting started. The other thing is, is, is 50 isn't really old anymore. It I reckon, I, I Everyone reckon says, right. we're eating better, you yeah. know, we're, it's, I, I put it down to the fact that they stopped putting lead in petrol when we were kids. Right, because if you, when growing up, if you saw like an actor or a rock star in their fifties, they all look like Keith Richards or Zelda <laughs> from the Terrorhawks, you know. Whereas now we're fairly smooth, you know. Fountains we moisturize, of youth, aren't we? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's but all because they stop putting lead in the petrol. Yeah, <laughs> but do, do you know it, it, it is interesting? My my gran, who is an amazing woman, she okay, crazy story. She gave birth to my mum when she was on the run from the Russians. Wow. In 1945. She wow. was fleeing Prussia and she was in bomb shelters and she was carrying my mum. So I'm kind of like a, a, a kind of a knock-on effect, if you like, from someone that survived that, which is incredible. Yeah. And it really, like with everything happening in the world right now, that really like hits home for me. Um, but my gran, she turned 101 on on Friday last week. 101! Wow. Wow. So happy birthday, Ormi. In Germany, I know you don't listen to this podcast because you don't know what a podcast is, bless her. But, <laughs> but she's living that lovely life of, of, you know, she doesn't have all of the trouble with computers and blue screens and phones running out of batteries. She's just like, she's, that's, you know, isn't that amazing? 101. And what, a, what, an, what an accomplishment uh, that is. I think that's, that's even more, that's even more impressive than turning 100, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but, but when you think about it, we make such a big deal about turning 100. Um, um, but there was another lady I knew locally. She died just recently before her 109th birthday. And I remember having a conversation with her when she was about 107. And I said to her, I said, what's the secret to life? What's the elixir? Like, how have you, because she was, she, she looks like she was, I'm not kidding you. She looked like she was about 80 
when she was right. not unbelievable and i said what what are the three things that you would you would share with me as the elixir to like a long life Class, she classic said, devote question classic devote question yeah i'm there with my notebook right i'm gonna share this with the world i'm gonna, I'm gonna get this information and she, you know she had three things you never guess what they well you probably guessed two of them uh, the first thing was walk every day right she said laugh a lot and the third thing she said was oatmeal for breakfast every morning. I was like, oh, okay, I'll make a note of that. So I started eating oatmeal. But, <laughs> but do, you know, do you know what the thing was? Is I looked at her and she was radiating life, mm. even in her final years. She was joyful. She didn't look like she had aged to 109. Like, she looked, like I say, she looked about 30 years younger. And she always had this lightness about her. She always had this lovely smile. And she was just, she just embraced life. And I think that's the secret. I think if we can kind of let go of so much of the crap that honestly is not that important, it really isn't. <laughs> I mean, no, I, as we talked, you know, I, my dad passed away recently. I sat with him on his deathbed and I was thinking about all of the things that we worry about. And it's like, it's not important. So much of it, some of it is really important and some of it is very serious. But honestly, about 95% of it, we can just... <laughs> just let go of it it's yeah. like we'll not yeah. worry about it in, in next week let alone in five years from now and it's it is absolutely true and i, I think that that kind of positive outlook in life I, I i've known elderly people who couldn't wait to die you know <laughs> and oh, i know. so miserable about it oh but it's and, so sad and i can understand that though as well because it it, it some people can you know it can it's, it can be a real challenge and a struggle but yeah yeah yeah, but it's but, the, yeah, I'd love. Yeah. I think I think we take maybe we make a choice when we get to about I don't know fifty. <laughs> maybe 50. maybe this is our moment, Mark. Maybe I'm, maybe this is our moment. Maybe we should just. I'm, is, I'm it, desperately thinking in the back of my mind how do we tie this into writers? But I think this is all very relevant. No, I think it is, it's it all is, relevant. It is a truism that the older you get, the less of a crap you give about other people's the things you thought that were important that you worried about in your twenties and thirties, what yes. other people thought of me. Uh, that kind of thing, you don't care about that anymore. You, you really, you really don't. Go of stuff. And yeah. you you start living fearlessly, a bit more fearlessly, and it's absolutely and, true. And from more about lightly mid-40s as well. Onwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. When you let go of stuff, you're actually allowing yourself to let go of the burdens of some of the things you're dragging along in your mm. kind of like backpack of life that you're having to like. And for me, it's about letting go, simplifying as much as you can. I'm big into simplification right now. God, that's a... <laughs> huge huge thing for me um but also yeah i think there's and 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 i, I mean writing about the struggles is a great way to let go of them we've talked about this in the academy so often about when people come up with like how do i i'm having i'm really struggling with my writing right now all these things are happening in my life and i keep saying great write about them write about them acknowledge them put them on paper see them for what they are allow you allow yourself to start letting go sometimes it's you can't just drop things sometimes it's about a transition from place a to place b but um i i do think it's i think that is why we keep showing up each week is because we understand the value of how writing can play such a major role in the big thing that we've just been talking about which is the yeah. big picture the big picture of life and who knew folks when you were tuning into today's podcast that Mark and I were going to go into essentialism and, and <laughs> we don't script it. it in this do we <laughs> we don't and that's what I love about it and, and I think and it is it's super important it really is important and I, I really hope that I really hope that if you're listening to this right now and you've you have had a crap day you've having a crap week maybe 2023 has been an absolute nightmare for you or maybe you're having a lovely time and you're really happy about things you're looking around saying why is everyone so sad and miserable 
wherever you're at in life, I hope something that we just said brightens you up or makes you see the world slightly differently or makes you think of things in a different way because we don't talk about this enough. And this, honestly, Mark, this is my jam. I love to go deep on this stuff. I love to talk about it because I think we discover so much. I mean, you've kind of opened door now, Mark. Now you're saying you're starting to meditate. I mean, God knows you're unleashing the the Kraken in me. I'm going to be like, well, let's, let's go full on on this. But I think it, it's, it's about being open to exploring what life really is about. And as a writer, it's about understanding about how your writing really ties into that in such a core and important way. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just important to, to just be open to that and run with it. And, and if we can all be a little bit lighter and a little bit happier, we might all end up living a lovely life and dying at 109 with a smile <laughs> on our face. Right. I mean, that, well, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? It's a dream. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. How many, yeah. okay. New calculation. Like we always talk about, I always talk about 4,000 Saturdays and the average number of books you can write in a lifetime. But that's based on an average age of about 79 years, which is the mm. average lifespan of someone in the world. Uh, you only take all cultures and nations. Um, if I had to recalculate how many books you could write in 109 years. In fact, okay, has anyone ever written a book who's over 100 years of age? And if they have, we. and if you're alive and you can tell us, or if it was your grandparent, or if it was your... I want to hear about people that wrote books in a very, very kind of like in, in their very last decades of their life, but really, you know, people that really made it, made it a long way. I'd love to hear about what they wrote about and if it ever got published. Um, what's the oldest, what's the book that's been written by the oldest person ever alive? I don't know the answer to that question, but it must be out there somewhere. Yeah, I was chatting to someone at the RNA Awards who was well into her 80s and she felt she was just getting started. So Yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of Never people that get started in their 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and another question, have you is this do who's do we have someone in their 90s who's just starting writing? Has someone discovered this podcast like in their 80s and 90s and been inspired to write? We want to hear from you. Tell us tell us about your what you're up to. That'd be really fascinating as well. And cuz you you would totally inspire everyone out there. All those people are saying, oh, I'm 50 or I'm 40 or I'm too, I'm starting too late. I'm 60. It's too late to start a new career or a new hobby. There's someone out there who's probably writing in their hundreds right now. <laughs> <laughs> Brings a whole new meaning to the 200 word challenge, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's dive in because we, we've got a humdinger of an interview today like if you i mean firstly let's say it's, it's so it's so lovely to have a children's author on the show we've had a number of children's authors um but there's a lot to be learned even if you're not a children's author from this interview isn't there mark tell us about our guest this week yes matt well, i mean talk about feeling young and feeling used. i mean matt describes it as arrested development which i, I feel like i have um, myself but matt brown is the author of such wonderful children's books as the Compton Valance series, which is about a boy who creates a time machine from a 13-week-old mouldy sandwich. He also writes the Dreary Inkling school books, and he's done The Mab, which is a retelling of The Mabinogi, which might be one of the oldest st written stories in the history of Britain. Matt was also a TV presenter, notably on Nickelodeon, and he's a podcaster, but don't hold that against him. We discuss... The worst rejections you've ever heard, how he works with illustrators and editors, the influence of TV comedy on his writing, and farts. We <laughs> farts, for some reason, come up a lot 
in this conversation, <laughs> which will probably tells you all you need to know about um, myself and Matt. So, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, hold your noses, folks, and uh, enjoy this incredible interview with the absolutely lovely Matt Brown. Matt Brown, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm really well. I've just had some porridge. I've got a coffee on the go. And all is sun shining, all, all is well with the world. Very, very. And I see that you were recently voted the greatest writer ever in the history mm. of the world by Stockport Grammar School, knocking Shakespeare into second place. That must have been quite a day. It was. I mean, I, you know, I mean, we all saw it coming, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's just funny. I, I love telling that uh, when I go into schools, I tell, tell to incredulous teachers and kids that I am, I've been voted the greatest writer in, in the history of the English language. Fantastic. It's good. It looks very good on the CV, I've got to say. Uh, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about the, the books and the wonderful books and series that you've got out there and then go back to sort of where it all started. And yeah. then I, and at the end, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question, which you're under no obligation to answer. Um, but let's start yes, with... Yes, we should have a general election. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Was that it? Was that the question? <laughs> let's, let's, start with, uh, let's start with Compton Valance, uh, which is about a kid with a time-travelling sandwich, which, yeah. I, as I understand it, it was an idea that you were convinced had been done before, which made me think, you know how Paul McCartney, the the, the, the yesterday just arrived and he was convinced that someone had written it already? Was was yeah. it like that? Well, I mean... I, Are you bigger than I'm the Beatles thrilled, as well I'm as better thrilled. than Shakespeare? <laughs> I'm thrilled with the comparison to yesterday. Um, I think that in, in terms of my writing life, there have been... I've, so I've had... So, so far, I've had eight books published... I've got three more coming out in the next couple of years. So, so so a total of about 11 or 12 books. And two of them have been really easy to write. They've just sort of like come out. And the first Compton Valance was one of those. And I sort of take that to be, I don't know if it is a sign of, of you're on the right tracks or not with a story, when it just sort of just tumbles out of you. Um, and I think that because I'd been trying to be published for, you know, like God, 15 previously been writing stories and sending them out and being knocked back Mm. um and it always been a bit of a struggle uh it always been quite hard to make the story work and to make plot lines fit together and to kind of get get characters to to really sort of work hard for you and that that story the first Compton Valance story as you said about a boy who accidentally creates a a time machine out of a sandwich just it just was all there and and so I just I think I was so suspicious of that that I just automatically <laughs> assumed that <laughs> that I must have in some way stolen it from somebody. But I think where it had come from was just a love of of sci-fi stories all my life, and particularly I was a big fan of that sort of subgenre of time travel stories. Excellent stuff. Had you been the stuff that you've been writing and that hadn't quite been working? Was that very much in the same vein or had you been writing for older children or younger children or adult stuff? What sort of stuff were you writing before? Compton it was Bands? all, it was always kid stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and it was, yeah, it was pretty much sci-fi fantasy sort of in the, in that sort of world. The, the very, the first thing that I wrote and sent off to a publisher, I didn't even go for an agent was, um, a, a more serious story. My, my stories are, are sort of, you know, funny stories that have been published. And that was a, a more sort of uh, serious story, still for that sort of age group, sort of seven to 10-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about aliens. 
And uh, I got uh, the feedback I got from the publisher was that it was the worst thing they'd ever read. (laughs) (laughs) You're kidding. They actually said that. (laughs) They did. And and I think that it was, it'd come, I'd sent it, I'd sent it via some, a friend of mine or somebody I worked with knew that I was writing a story and said, oh, I know a publisher. Why don't you, you know, I'm very happy to sort of pass it on. And so I said, yeah, great. So it was, it wasn't even a full story, you know, it was sort of like about six, seven chapters right. of it. And um, and then, so this person, this intermediary then said, yeah, I've had some feedback and then just <laughs> sent me the email that they sent. So I don't know if it had ever been intended for me to read it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but, but also the person who had sent it, the, the, the publisher, the person who worked in the publishing team was quite a junior person and it almost felt like they were cutting their teeth a bit you know and and right, yeah. um had to have a really strong opinion about something mm. and i don't think i mean i certainly think with all the editors that i've worked with subsequently having been published now the, um the, no, nobody would ever say something like that no. on just on the basis that i think that there's that um that technique in uh, improvisation which is called uh yes and yes and which yes. is where you're never allowed to say no to something or shut something down you've always got to cr- kind of expand on it and see mm. where it goes and i think that the editors are much more like that now mm. and agents are much more like that um so i think I, I i received that bit of advice um probably not meant to or probably wasn't meant to see it but in actual fact i printed it out and stuck it on my wall for many years <laughs> and, it, and it provided me with uh with inspiration um so and i think that again it feels like if you are um you're a writer but you haven't been published and you want to be published you do have to have a bit of that um you know screw you sort of attitude and uh, i don't care what you say i'm just gonna just keep on keep on on writing the stuff and it it will always get better because the more you do something the more the better it gets I think you're absolutely right. The number of authors we've had on here who've been spurred on by the words "I'll show you" while waving an <laughs> yeah. angry fist is exactly. uh, is, is. I mean, is, we've, we've all got. We, I mean, I've still got my re, my all my rejection letters, um, and looking back at them, it's interesting to see how there are lots of you get lots of rejection letters which are uh, we don't have a you know we don't have a, a space on our books for you at this time thank you for your interest sort of yeah. two lines yeah. but i i did receive quite a few saying who were very kind and who who were saying look this isn't quite right at the moment but it's obvious that you enjoy it and it's obviously that there's something there so please keep writing and keep sending us stuff because um we think that you you know we, we think that it, it will happen for you and mm. i think that um i think so i think rejection letters sometimes there are there are rejection letters and there are rejection letters yeah yeah that's very good very good point indeed <laughs> I, 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 with the compton valance books which um i, I downloaded an ebook of them and by the way the ebooks folks come with sound effects which is brilliant <laughs> uh and i was looking and the layout of them is amazing and you've got you know you've got caps and speech bubbles and text all over the page and yeah. you're working with the illustrator lizzie finley i'd love to know how that working relationship has evolved because uh you know maybe with your first book you just wrote the text and the images were interpolated and as you've gone on has that developed tell, tell us how that how that worked well i mean it's always the same um the same process really and i'd say that this is where like um it takes a village to make a book uh would, would come into it um, because essentially I write the text, I send it off. We work on that until we're happy with it. And then that text gets sent to the designers first, right? who then sort of like lay it out on the page 
how they want it to, and then they send it to the illustrator with, you know, ideas for for which which bits they want illustrated and where on the page they want it to be illustrated. So the idea of the layout for Compton Valence, which, as you say, is is sort of it's it's I think it's a really lovely read for a kid mm. because it's all sort of jumbly and um, you've got a kind of like yeah words sort of like spiral on the page. Um, and the illustrations is really interwoven with the words that really it was down to the editor um, uh, for that book who who had that had that vision and that's what she wanted to do um, and when she sort of showed it to me I I really loved it um, and sort of you know and gave it my blessing really mm-hmm. and then or what what then happens is that is that when the sort of draft illustrations come back I've got some license to say actually that's not what I thought they would look like or um, maybe you could do this, or I don't like that it, that drawing. But by and large, that's probably about ten percent of the drawings are kind of fall under that. The rest of it is just I'm just, always just blown away by the illustrators that I work with. So mm. Lizzie on the on the Compton series, and the the other illustrator um, for my Dreary Inkling series, uh, Paco Sordo. Uh, um, I just enjoy working with them. I think simply because I'm I've got such a limited visual range um and so it's it's lovely to be able to work with somebody who who obviously doesn't um and i'm really excited but just speaking about i mean illustration is such a big part of the books that i do and i've got a series coming out in september this year new brand new series brand new characters and uh the illustrator is uh flavia sorrentino who re- most recently to my knowledge uh or, or the thing that that i knew her from was pg bell's uh the great brain robbery books Right. Um, and, uh, she's, she's brilliant. So it's really nice to be able to work with someone who is visual because mm-hmm. I am so unvisual, I think in the way that I work. So when you're writing your drafts, even now, when you're a few books into to both series, you're not putting things in the comments saying, okay, I'd like this to look like a snake or let's have an explosion here. Or can we have, you're just concentrating solely on the text. Solely on the text, yeah, um, and and it's funny because my editor for for this this latest book series that's coming out, um, which is called Kevin the Vampire, by the way, um, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> she said that to me, and I'd never thought about it before. She'd said because there was a little 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 a little situation that I thought it'd be nice if we could have a, a clue in the illustration that I wouldn't give in the text, and she said, "Oh, just write that, just just put it in brackets," and then and I thought, oh, that's yeah, how come it's taken me ten years to to be able to work that out? Uh, one thing I noticed about the Drury Inkling books: uh, there's more text. It's a bit less hyperactive than the Compton yeah. Balance books. Was that a deliberate choice to calm things down, to sort of experiment a bit more with the, the concentrate more on the story? Or yeah, I think so. Um, it's it's funny. You you want your books to be accessible to everybody. Um, and and you realize that in order to do that, you have to make choices. And I'd never really thought that before um, about stories and about illustrations and about the, the design of the book. Um, for the Compton books, we got a lot of people saying that um, particularly readers who had forms of dyslexia, some found it difficult, some found it, it made it easier to read. But I think that there was a, there was a, um, a sort of a sense that we wanted to yeah to to make it as easy as possible for everybody for as many people as possible to read mm-hmm. and so that the so the font they they sort of tested the font out it's a slightly different i don't know what the font is but it's a slightly different font um and there is 
um, more text on the page probably, but still not a lot. Mm. Um, and I think that, and, and also I, I wonder as well, I mean, I have, I have had this problem more recently with, um, and it sounds like something so stupid, but the price of paper has yeah. skyrocketed recently. So we've just, we've just done an edit, um, a sort of an, an unscheduled edit on this new book because the price of paper is so high. We needed to cut about 2000 words out of the story. Really? Um, yeah. And that's simply because foreign markets were saying, we love the book, but it's just, there's just too many pages at the moment. So, so it, it's prohibited. It would be prohibitively expensive for us to do foreign editions of it. Um, and I, so I wonder whether things like that, that I didn't know at the time may have, may have, uh, had a, had an impact on, on the design of a, of a story or the illustrations that they use. Wow. That's really, because I, I know paper prices and card is, is going up and it's becoming more expensive, but then I, I've got lots of friends who are fantasy authors who will happily write a 200,000 word fantasy epic, but then yeah. it will cost 20 pounds plus for a hardcover of, of yeah. that, you know, so yeah. And I suppose wow. that's the benefit of um, e-publishing mm. uh, is that you don't have to have to worry about that at all. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure that lots of fantasy readers read on e-books in yeah. a way that it's, it's not really a big thing for kids. Um, so books yeah. are still are still the, the way that they get their their stories. Very much so. And do you, do you have an idea of the kind of balance of your readers? Uh, are there more boys than girls? Uh, and what sort of child do you have in mind when you're writing your books? That is, uh, a, yeah, a question that I've, I, I can't really give you an answer. I don't think. Fair enough. I, uh, I mean, but, but I don't know. I mean, do you have a do you have an, a person in mind when you write your yeah, it's, stories? It's usually me. Uh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> it's, I think that's the same. It's the same. I think if you're pleasing yourself, then yeah. you sort of hope that that somebody else will will like it. The, the the thing about boy, you know boys versus girls on the stories is I'm often asked. It's so weird that the whole industry, I think, and I by industry I mean like educators, parents as well. I sort of like lump into this is that there's an obsession with writing stories for boys or writing stories yeah. for girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really infuriates me because I think that, and so when I'm asked, oh, is it, is it, would it be good for boys? I sort of, I say it's like, it's good for someone who finds things funny, um, who wants to read a funny story. That's, that's who it's good for because it feels like that there isn't that, that yeah, it feels like that it's not, not really one or the other. I, I don't think that, I don't think, um, that girls laugh any less about, you know, a funny situation than boys would, or would find it something more or less scary or, or interesting i suppose i I think you're absolutely right i think there is a fear that we and i had this with my son when he was a teenager that you lose them to gaming their boys tend to you know uh, sure uh, you know when my son was a teenager he was playing grand theft auto that's what a brilliant parent i am Um, it's great great game (laughs) and uh, i was like come on george come on george read a book i said books they're full of sex and violence read them here's some stephen king you know uh weirdly it was asterix and tintin in the end that 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 saved him him. yeah but uh it's um (laughs) i think it's i think it's a fear among parents and and also, and we're talking sweeping generalizations here, which is probably never a good thing when you're talking about gender. <laughs> uh, but you you do find uh, that publishing is certainly children's publishing. Most of the editors are women. 
there are very yeah. few blokes com yeah. as commissioning editors who, yeah. uh, you know, they women are brilliant editors, but they were never uh, an eight-year-old boy picking their nose and farting and 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 having no. those. But I wonder that I'm sure they were picking their nose and farting. <laughs> I'm almost <laughs> certain true, that they were doing. They were doing those things. Um, <laughs> but I think as well that children's publishing, I guess more than adult publishing, seems obsessed with putting kids in boxes. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go yeah, into a true. bookstore, it's it's you know you you've got your shelf for five to sevens and your shelf for eight to twelves and your shelf for YAs and your shelf for picture books. And I do wonder whether what would happen if you just organised books by genre rather than but the age group. I think that that comes from I guess that comes from the curriculum where they're obsessed with reading ages and the, the Oxford reading tree and stuff like that and yeah 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 and, and, and as you you know you've had you know you've got got kids yourself you you realize that I mean so the books I write for the, the category I think is seven to eleven and the difference in uh, people age seven to age eleven is is extraordinary oh, vast, I mean it's yeah. like it's like a sort of 20 year old and an 80 year old sort of, sort of, you know, <laughs> variation. And also, you know, there are kids, kids who are much better readers or, or more confident readers. Sorry. That's, that's, that's not fair. More yeah. confident readers, readers than, than other kids, um, kids who find reading difficult for whatever reason, or kids who are much more interested in, in, in pictures or, or graphics than they are sort of the words. And so it's, it's so, so broad that I think that it's almost useless. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, let's go back to where it all started, because you and I have something yeah. in common, which is yes. uh, we both pinched jokes from Blackadder and Ben Elton to make people yes. laugh at school. Uh, tell us tell us about that. <laughs> well, well, I suppose I was, I've, I just always loved television. I think that, that and when, when I'm in schools and kids say, you know, you, you know, if you always enjoyed reading stories, I mean, the honest answer is is that when I was sort of uh, a preteen, that I sort of read, I did read some books, but really I was into TV. That was where I, and comics. Mm. Um, and th those were the things that I loved to read. And those were the things where I sort of got my stories from. So I, I do always say to parents or teachers, I think as long as a kid likes a story, it doesn't really matter how they get it. It could be, I mean, a video game is a story as far as I'm concerned. So it doesn't, doesn't bother me too much that that my kids are just obsessed with, <laughs> with video games. Oh. Um, so I, I love TV and I love TV comedy. And I was, I was, I was just a kid. I was like nine or 10. I was in primary school when I first saw the young ones, right, which yeah. sort of blew, blew my, blew my brain out. Um, and it was one of those, I think that, cause it's so cartoony that show um, that, it was I was able to be watched by quite a broad range of of people. Certainly at nine, I wasn't getting the sort of overt, um, sort of political sort of comedy that was going yeah. on. Um, but it meant that I was then it was just sort of gateway into into that that sort of stuff. And particularly Ben Elton, I suppose, was someone yeah. who I who I loved. And Rick Mail was the sort of yeah, hero yeah. of mine. And even now, I mean, in in the stories, I find increasingly that I've always got in my stories an old woman. And uh, the old woman, whenever I, I sometimes do the audio books for mine and they always sound like Rick Mail doing George's <laughs> Marvelous Medicine from <laughs> Jack and Ori when I, when I do them. So I think those things are so, and so sort of vital to your uh, creative life. Those experiences when you're in your, you know, sort of preteen and, and early teens, 
Um, and I still, yeah, I still love, love using them. And I can still, I'm sure you can recite entire oh, episodes. Absolutely. The Young Ones and Blackadder, even though I've not watched them for 30 years. Yeah. No, I can absolutely, still, absolutely. I mean, still the, the Young Ones, you were talking about comic books as well. I mean, The Young Ones is is almost like the Bass Street kids go to university. You know? Yeah, it's, it is. It's, yeah. It has that anarchic comic book, comic strip kind of energy to it which yeah. when you're a kid it's great because they're smashing stuff they're they're yeah. farting they're it's talked a lot talking. about farting this episode uh, but, <laughs> you know so it, it has Perfectly that kind of normal human function exactly mark. yes uh so yeah it has that kind of comic strip behavior and you're right it's only when you come back to it as an adult you think this was really really very political as well you know? yeah. yeah yeah it was and so you know god yeah some of the stuff that uh so i used to watch it with my parents because they were right. they were found it hilarious and i found it hilarious mm. but for completely different reasons and yes. it's, it's i suppose it's that thing of that they often talk about the simpsons in that way don't they um yeah. as being something that can work on for two different audiences at the same time and i sort of like to think that in a funny way my books do that uh i often i often imagine the parent reading them and they will get sort of get this this the sort of su- there'll be some subtlety sort of jokes in there along with the sort of more broad brushstroke stuff that I think yeah. I hope that they get something out of it as well absolutely I, I think you know as a parent who spent every night reading to one child or the other you you had your own favorite books the ones that you could yeah. and I remember <laughs> uh the horrid Henry books I mean I worked at Orion and we sold the horrid Henry books and there were some lovely little gags for grown-ups in those mm. as well that worked really really well yeah um, so yeah how how <laughs> How aware are you of that? I, I mean, you know, we're talking about you're writing for yourself to please yourself, but how aware mm. are you of the parent as as perhaps the conduit for your uh, for your stories? Yeah, I mean, not too much. I try not to think too hard about that, and, and often I think in the in certainly the first draft, um, I I sort of I, I go slightly over the over the top in terms of the jokes being a bit near the knuckle. Right. And um, knowing that they might get, or or I've re- I've learned that if you you've got to chuck a, if you chuck enough stuff at something, then some of it will get through. Right? Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. you can, and there'll be battles to be fought with your editors about a certain joke, but you you can kind of like say, okay, have that one, take that one out, but leave that one in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's uh, it's it's really fun. I think about this a lot. There's a book that I wrote called um, Aliens Invaded My Talent Show. <laughs> which is about a uh, a group of school kids who whose talent show in their school is sort of ruined by some aliens who are visiting. And um, there was a joke at the beginning where I'm talking, so I'm setting the scene about this character called Eric. Eric Doomsday is his name. <laughs> and I wanted him, he's, he's basically, he's not a popular kid in the school and uh, he's a bit alone. And, and in the beginning, I sort of try and demonstrate this by saying that he's never had any post- um, you know, he never gets any posts. And I can remember that being a big thing when I was a really kid. Really big thing. Like adults adult. get lots of posts. <laughs> you never yeah. get any fun posts anymore. It's all bills. No, it's all bills. <laughs> but the, the, but I just love the idea of getting post. And so so Eric never gets any post. And then but then I say, oh, but he did get something once that was it, it was it was sort of mar- he accidentally opened something that was for his auntie, and he spent he spent a terrible sort of you know twenty minutes thinking he was six months pregnant. Um, and and that that joke made it through about three edits and then somebody said we think we should change it and I was really sad about that and so it then got watered down to a joke about 
having to go to the hospital to lance a boil or you know something right, like that right and i thought oh, i just i was really 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 sad about some of the jokes that don't make it in <laughs> that's a good gag. i thought it was great <laughs> i'm just trying to mention the parent reading that yeah, because if it was me, like I would just crack up, and my son would be going, "What? What?" Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And maybe that's because that was the reason it was taken out. Maybe because they thought it wouldn't make sense to a uh, to a kid. I think that was the note that it would sound a bit weird for a kid. Weird oh. to a kid. I thought oh, that's a shame. That is a shame. That is a shame. Because <laughs> again, going back to the young ones, and I think Python did this as well. They were put in one massively outrageous joke that the censor would go, "No, that's going." Yeah, in order for the joke they really wanted to go in to stay in yeah. that whole yeah. negotiation process. So, yeah, yeah that's, it that's, is a bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of TV, you worked as a presenter at Nickelodeon. Yes. Uh, was that a great training ground for you in terms of getting into the mindset of what children like? Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And it was, it, is, it was quite inspirational and it's remained uh, a constant uh, theme in, in my writing life for kids. Because at Nickelodeon, they uh, very much had the mantra that um, they wanted it to be for kids. They didn't want it to be for adults. Mm. They wanted all the shows. And, and and I was one of the sort of continuity presenters, uh, introducing shows and uh, back shows and that sort of thing. And again, the stuff that we used to do, it was like we, we would never think about what a parent would think. We would mm. think about what a kid would think. And I thought that was really interesting. And also, um, it was fascinating to me when I thought about some, some like a, a, an organization, an organization like the BBC. And I am a humongous fan of the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that some of their kids' programs, certainly when I was a kid, very were, were definitely, you know, made with the, what would the adult think in the room of this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that that has shaped my my view on on writing for kids because I really try and write things that they will find funny, um, write things stories that they will find scary or interesting, and not worry at all about what a parent might think. To the point that um, I mean that you can just see when, when I'm when I'm reading in schools, the teachers sort of, oh God, sort of rolling their eyes. <laughs> Some of the some of the stuff, and a lot of the stuff is scatological, or this it yeah. is sort of bodily functiony. Um, but again, this this you know, I mean, I was in. I mean, I've got two sons, one seventeen, one fourteen. We're in the car this morning, going to school, and my youngest son, <laughs> he just sort of like he just um, he just sort of like wound the window down next to him. And I and I looked over at him, and he was just sort of he, he was sort of looking all sort of like like he wanted to laugh a lot, and you know that no words were spoken, but I knew what I knew exactly what had, what what he'd just done, and it, I just his reaction to it made me laugh. Um, and I think that there, I mean, I know that that sort of you know that sort of toilet humour is sort of looked down upon by by lots of people, but. Not me. <laughs> no, I just think there's so much of that of like what bit of being a person of the sort of the nuts and bolts of being a person, and it doesn't have to be toilet based. It can be all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's that's I think there's so it's such a rich, funny ground, and and 
makes me laugh so much when it happens in in my own life mm. and it, you know it's like people falling over isn't it or yes. you know it's just it's it's sort of pricking the pomposity of of the or the absurdity of of us as humans yes and trying yeah. to live within these weird rules that we've constructed when in fact we're just sort of bags of of uh of <laughs> farts and burps <laughs> how do you um because i know you've used your children as sounding boards for your work uh, yeah. You worked at Nickelodeon, but you know your children are getting older. Mine are in their twenties now. How do you remain in that uh, mindset of children who are reading today? How do you how do you kind of you know without? Because I think one of the problems that a lot of and I've heard this from editors is that people in their forties will try and write a children's book. And it'll be like the books they read when they were children, and they're mm. not like the books that are being read today. I mean, obviously, you've got skin in the game. You're doing incredibly well. But how do you maintain knowing what those kids want? I, I, I don't know is the answer. Other other than that, I I, I definitely have arrested development. Right. Um, and that, I mean, my youngest son calls me a man-child. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Which I sort of wear slightly as a badge of honour. Um and I, and I think, and it's like, but when I'm at parties, if I go to a friend's like and they're having a party, I, I really gravitate and I want to chat to the kids. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's sort of like the, the upper end price, the kids I, I write for, I suppose. Mm. I don't know why that is, but they just, they just ma- always make me laugh. And there's such, there's such an uncynical sort of, it's such an uncynical age. It's mm. such a lovely age. That sort of seven, eight, nine, ten year old age where just everything is possible. They're up for everything. They don't, they, they are, they do the yes. And all the time they're, yeah. they, you know what I mean? They're just, they're just, I find it incredibly sort of, um, vital, you know, vitalizing, revitalizing whenever I I'm sort of in their company. Mm. And I suppose that, and maybe it's because I, I mean, who knows, but my parents divorced when I was nine. And I think, and that there was definitely like a change in my life, obviously, at that point, where things got a bit real, maybe, yeah, and yeah. so maybe, maybe it's something to do with that. That that it's kind of like I see that sort of pre sort of nine, ten year old as a as a sort of an an idealistic, idealized age. I also love that I love listening to them because they say things that um, make me laugh. But also, there was there was a, I was at a friend's house recently. And the, I was trying to think what the phrase was that this this kid said. I mean, it was um, he was sort of bemoaning the fact that no one ever listens to him. That he's this sort of like the middle kid, and no one listens to him. And he just said, "You always never tell me things." <laughs> I thought I would never in a million years be able to write that, but I've obviously used it in a story. <laughs> because it's such a brilliant way of uh, of describing that frustration. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know why I. I I don't know why I still enjoy writing for that age group, but I really do. But and maybe it'll change. Maybe, maybe I'll start writing for uh, you know for older. Now that my kids are older, may, maybe maybe that'll be the catalyst to to write for older kids or that's adults. It, I don't know. A slight change of tack as well. In that you have this brilliant book, The Mab. Tell us about The Mab, which you've worked on with Eloise Williams. That's right. Former Children's Laureate Wales, Eloise Williams. Um, and it was a lockdown project, really. Um, right. uh, it was, um, the, I, I grew up in South Wales and we, as part of an English lesson uh, one week, talked about the stories of the Mabinogi, 
which uh, for anyone who doesn't know are sort of ancient British stories. Um, we think that uh, they're the oldest prose stories ever committed to print in uh, in the UK. Um, and uh, so about five years ago, um, and they're full of things like ma- magicians and dragons and, and it's where King Arthur sort of makes his debut. Mm. And um, uh, I was, my son was sort of getting into things like um, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and things like that. And I thought, Oh, I'll, I'll get a copy for kids of this, these stories. Cause he'll, he'll, you know, he'll like them and, I, and I'd like to read them again. And I thought I'd like to read a kid's version. Cause that'll give me a, it's like a reading a sort of like a primer, isn't it? On these mm. stories. Mm. And as I'd looked and there wasn't a copy, there wasn't a copy that had been written of all 11 stories for kids in English. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, somebody should, that's a gap in the market. Somebody should do something about that. And then forgot about it until lockdown happened. And about two, two weeks in, I sort of was on a dog walk in that lovely sort of, you know, sun, sunny weather that we had mm. with my wife. And I said, I think as, as you know, it doesn't look like this is going to, be going away so i I think i'm going to try and um do this this mabinogi for kids um got in touch with eloise who i knew through somebody and asked her she wanted to to help me do it um she was really into it and we decided we were going to crowdfund it simply because no publisher was uh wanted to touch it with a barge pole (laughs) frankly um for a variety of reasons probably lockdown was was key amongst them but also because it's an anthology Publishers are very reluctant to 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 publish anthologies unless you've got like a a kind of superstar name involved, mm. uh, which we didn't. So we went to Unbound, who are a crowd for, crowd uh, funding publisher, and and I knew them because I I'd um, supported your book on there. No, oh. <laughs> um, I was trying to look for a copy of it, but I can't. I don't know what I've. <laughs> what it's probably is. propping up a table. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really like that. And Thank somebody you. else had done it. And then I'd, um, I'd supported somebody else on it. And I just loved that, that idea for anyone who hasn't seen Unbound. It's great. They, they, they produce really high quality, interesting projects. And, but the thing is you get to kind of be part of the journey. And that was a lovely thing. You know, you get to, to the authors update you on how it's going and what stage they're at and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so we crowdfunded it and the crowdfunding went really well and it suddenly became a book that we had incredible amounts of control over in terms of who illustrated it, what it looked like, the design, you know, we picked the font, the the book was in every, you know, we did sort of did everything. Um, we got in touch with Michael Sheen through another friend, um, and he gave us a forward for the book. Um, and, um, and it's it was then published in July of last year, and it's going it's going really well. Fantastic, absolutely brilliant. I, I want to wind things up now with a really unfair question, okay? That, that you're under no obligation to to answer, but this is just something I see with children's authors all the time, yeah. particularly children's authors in the UK. So, on a scale of one to ten, how much do you hate David Walliams? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, uh, I've got a slight, yeah, it's a slightly, not love hate, but it's a, there's a duality. I do think that he has, um, he's kind of created a market that I benefit from. Right. But he does, and not just him, there are other sort of superstar names that suck a lot of the energy and the oxygen out of, um, out of the, the space that I'm in. 
simply because I think what they what they do is so derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there are some that I think are really good. For example, I really enjoyed um, the Parent Agency David Baddiel's sort of debut book, um, which seemed like that was really interesting, and it was a great idea. And he's a, an interesting writer, and mm. I thought that worked really well. But I am a bit sick of seeing presenters. <laughs> I say this having been a presenter myself, <laughs> who write write a story, but that is basically the the thing they do on the telly right. in in a sort of children's book form. That I find quite irritating and uh um and it's it's only it's only really irritating because i don't think those books sell very well and i think that the publishers are i guess just under incredible pressure to make targets and make some money and they sort of they think that that's a, a good way of doing it and i think that um it's very difficult then for for other people to get in uh bookshops um it makes it very competitive uh, you know, yeah. proposition. I, th- I so, think it's, um, I mean, I, I worked for a publisher and I worked for, you know, we, we sold Orion Children's for a while and Horrid Henry was the big priority. So for us yeah. getting Horrid Henry into supermarkets, into WH Smith's, where there's much less shelf space, it's very competitive. You pay a lot of money to get on those shelves as well. Mm. Uh, there's a great expense there. But it, as you say, you know, for the casual, it tends to be the aunt or uncle who goes, what shall I get? the seven-year-old for Christmas in terms yeah. of books. And it's just an easy thing to go, just give them that. That's you it. Know, give yeah. them a David Williams or whatever. Whereas, um, you know, there's a yeah. lot more out there that people just don't know. Totally. I mean, I, I remember being in my local Waterstones and um, there was two people, uh, mum and a kid in the um, kids section. And I was sort of like watching, <laughs> watching them. <laughs> like <laughs> Taking notes. Look at those books. <laughs> look at my books. Look for my books. Um, and the kid was really enjoying his time, just sort of like, oh, we're like poking books out, looking through them. And, and eventually the mum was obviously incredibly rushed and, and time pressure. And eventually she just pulled out, she pulled out, I forget if it was a David Williams or a Roald Dahl or something, and said, look, we've heard of him. Let's take, let's take this really? book. And Gosh. that's the book that they bought. And I imagine that that must be the same up and down the country. Yeah. Also as well, I mean, most people, I think, buy books through, through uh, Sainsbury's or um, supermarkets, mm. as you say. Yeah. And if you go into a supermarket, um, even the really big ones, the the range of children's books they've got the, that they have is tiny, and it's like, and of of the hundred books they've got, you're you're right, like forty of them will be J.K. Rowling, forty of them will be <laughs> Roald Dahl and David yeah. Williams, and yeah. a couple of others. Um, and uh, I don't know what the answer is, um, but yeah, I think it's just worth if you if you're a parent and you're listening to this, there are so many amazing children's authors out there who don't get the um the the time or the recognition that a david williams or a jk rowling or a, a roald dahl uh, will get but their books are just as good if not better very good answer sorry to put you on the spot there matt matt thank you so much for speaking to me today uh you mentioned kevin the vampire when will we yes. see kevin the vampire kevin the vampire is going to be released in september 2023 um it's a story about um a carnival of monsters um and uh kevin is the is this the, the son of the owners who are vampires um and they they travel to a, a town that hates hates fun things um <laughs> and want to drive them away 
Um, so it's 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 a really funny story, but it, it's been great because it's been it's the first kind of complete world that I've ever created. Usually, my my sort of uh, monsters uh, inhabit the 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 real world, but this is a completely new world. Um, and uh, I obviously think it's the best thing I've ever done, <laughs> and would love it if people would go and buy it fantastic can't wait maybe you can come back and, and talk to us about that at the time as well we'd love to love Brilliant. to matt it's been an absolute joy and uh great speech and hope to speak to you again soon yeah thanks for having me mark so mark before this interview we were talking about people reaching a, a, a wonderful old age and and the joys that they experienced in their in their later years matt matt absolutely for me sums up just an incredible person who's so young at heart, who still has yeah, that yeah. childlike magic and like badge of honor. You know, he talks about his badge of honor with his son being, you know, being called, you know, like a grown up kid. And I think that's, it's, I think that's, it feels like that's such an important element to have. If you want to be a successful children's writer, you need to remember what it's like to be a kid and still embrace that inner child that we all have in us. And most of us like shut down because it's far too, you know, silly to be like, you know, um, child, childish or childlike in your, in your older years, right? I think it's absolutely essential. And you're right. Mm-hmm. So many of us get that knocked out of us, uh, usually at school. You know, you tell, grow up. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you hear? yourself and yeah. grow up. Or man uh, up is a, as, the, as, a, as guys, or, you know, you hear those mm-hmm. man up and you're like, whoa, hang on a minute. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think it is absolutely essential. And, and, uh, it's difficult to grasp it back once you've lost it as well. It's uh, it's you know once once you've once you've done that growing up once you've lost that instinct because I don't know about you but I remember in the in the playground there was this intense competition to be the funny one you know and oh, to be yeah. first with a gag I do and, remember that and, yeah yeah you know everyone I knew at school had a really really sharp wit really really funny yeah and it's yeah. it's fascinating I went to I say a few years ago it's about 10 years ago now I went to a friend's wedding and like Claire knew me and my friends all my teenage friends when we were teenagers so she knew what we were like but when yeah. we went to this friend's wedding we reverted to being those 16 17 year olds again Thank with you. the fart jokes and the all yeah. the rude stories and everything else yeah. and their wives were looking at us as if to say who is this person i who's this person i've married who what what, is, what are you doing why are you behaving like this and claire would just say <laughs> to them, no this was what they were like when they were teenagers like, so yeah. uh it's it's weird we it's still there we can probably tap into it i don't think it's ever yeah. too late it's it's there but if you want to write kids books it's essential you've got to tap into that point of view I, I think it's very much like many things in life. And that is like a, using a gym analogy or like, I don't know, doing press ups. Like, if you try and do a press up after 10 years of not doing a press up, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. my body's not working. But if you stick with it and, you know, you, you think, well, if just do one press up a day. And, and then two weeks later, oh, I feel like I can do two now. And then, you know, a few months down the road, you might be able to put out, push out 10 or 20 press-ups and then maintain that. I think it's something that we can, if we if we consciously want to get it back, I think we can allow ourselves to go back there. And I think one of the great things about becoming a new parent, so for all the new parents out there, that, that experience of being allowed to play with Lego again, that experience of being able to sit with your child and watch some old like TV show that you used to watch as a kid, it, stuff like that it just helps helps loosen you up a bit and 
Um, but I would love to be able to, I'd love to hang on to that for the rest of my life. I'd love to hang on to the joy of, because children are just brilliant. They're just, they're just like, so they're just out there. Just, they, they say what they think. Um, they have this incredible imagination where they can dream and be anything they want. And I'm thinking, God, if we could have a little bit of that and tap that in, drop that into us as, as adults about our yeah, writing. I or, mean, it sort of taps into what we were saying earlier. I think I'm getting that back now. You know, yes. the, the no fill. One of the great jobs, we had some people over at the weekend for my birthday and everything, and my great nephew came over and he's five. And we were sitting doing Lego together. And it's just one of the great joys, the two of us just sitting doing it. And he, I would, I had the instruction book and I was asking him to get pieces and what have you. Uh, and it was, it was just, you know, that there was no rush. There was no hurry. There was no thinking, oh, I've got to do this later. I've got, you were just in the moment. In and the I moment. think that's what kids are. Yeah. And it's not just about going back and remembering stuff that you enjoyed when you're younger. It's about remembering that point of view of being two foot shorter than everyone else. If you watch Spielberg is good at this as well. You watch Spielberg's movies where there's a child protagonist the camera is lower. So ET, Close Encounters, whenever uh, whenever there's a child, the camera drops down here to this height. So you're seeing it from that child's perspective as well. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it is, and Roald Dahl was very good at that as well. Well, we're going to talk about him in the extended version. We're going to come Ooh, back yes. to that. Uh, yeah, but yeah, he, he was, he remembered what it was like to be a child and um and yeah. know that adults don't always have your best interests at heart <laughs> yeah and also sometimes sometimes it's the adult that needs to learn from the child rather than oh, the other yeah. Way around yeah right and Almost not that the they're time. there to teach us something tell us what to do but it's by observing them and remembering because we all connect with that i think when we have children if we've been fortunate enough to have kids or unfortunate depending on where you are in the cycle um it's like You've got you've got that ability to tap in every day and remind yourself when one of your kids just does a silly dance, you know, in the kitchen or something ridiculous. It actually also taps into reminding us, yeah, I used to be like that. I used to do that. Mm. Oh my god, you know, it's like that's exactly what I was like growing up. Um, and I really admire people who keep that kind of fun, um, that fun aspect of, of of parenting and how you translate that into writing for children is is you've got to start by just laughing with kids i think you have to kind of get get to their level like you said like the camera get to their level and just have some fun with them well as um, as matt said you know he said at parties or gatherings he he gravitates towards the kids because they, they, they're always more fun than the adult adults <laughs> be going on about their bloody pension or mortgage or whatever <laughs> yeah, or exactly. some, something in the news yeah where the, the kids were i just i would we would go to um I remember we went to a wedding once and we were on that table that's right at the back by the toilets because we barely knew, you know, <laughs> who was getting married. But we, you know, we were happy to be there. And George, he was about eight at the time, was sat next to a guy and he discovered that he was a, a maths teacher. So George was just having his conversation about division and maths and stuff like that. And he would just, he, again, just in the moment, no no filter, no, you know, just yeah. having a, a completely open conversation. And that that ability just to walk up to anyone and talk to them and, and have a chat and just ask them about who they are and where they are in, 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 you know, and what they're interested in. And do you like this? And, uh, not afraid to ask questions as well. Cause this Lego thing that I was making with my, my great nephew was a rabbit and Lego do this thing where every year they bring out a little model based on the Chinese 
no year. So they've had the right. year of the ox and the year, uh, and, and this is uh, the year of the rabbits. So and I was explaining, oh, it's the year of the rabbit, that kind of thing. And um, he was looking at the other Lego models we've got on the shelf, and he said, oh, so it's the year of the rabbit, year of the tiger, year of the witch. <laughs> there was just a Lego <laughs> model of a witch. And... Um, he said that and it had never occurred to me before and it was just and immediately i'm thinking that's a great title for a book yeah <laughs> you know but well, it's just it's that thing of just observing things seeing them as they are which again just, we lose that we we lose that sometimes we have these yeah, filters we get blinkered we, we definitely yeah. get yeah, I was listening. I dropped the kids off at uh, school today, and I was listening to. I just turned on this random radio station, and it was um, uh, a, a local radio station in Vancouver. But it was uh, kind of an in, in. I think Hindi was the language, and I just left it on. I thought this is brilliant. I don't understand a word, but it was just so amazing. And I re I realised just how blinkered we can get when we forget there's entire other ways of communicating other yeah. ways of and different cultures and you know you can very easily forget i think also i think also mark without going down the rabbit hole with this but like with covid we've all become very a lot more anti-social generally and more mm. used to this isolation and it and when we when that happens it's easy for us to forget that there's this much bigger world out there and there's a lot of things that you know we can we can we can forget when we kind of get very myopic if you like in the worlds that we've been living and i think we're all trying to break out of that right now in a very kind of like um uh unruly way in many ways but it's it's fascinating um but as a writer i guess that what i love about the writing aspect is it 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 encourages us to keep thinking about that bigger world and thinking about other cultures and thinking about the way people do things differently as characters in our stories it keeps us kind of it's amazing really but it really keeps us kind of real in many respects um, whilst we get this kind of kind of closing in and this isolation that so many people have experienced. So um, one other thing that I thought was interesting that Matt said, I, I can't think of a writer that we've had on the show who's gone from being the worst ever writer <laughs> to the best in the world. I think this, these stories, the way it's these two leaf, stories fitted together, I know, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. I really, I, I, I think it's such a great... Um, it's such a great experience to, for any writer to hear Matt's story. I mean, as much as we jest about, you know, about it, but, but, you know, it, very, very real for him, like to hear those words, oh, it's the worst. Worst thing they'd ever read. Ever read. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, that makes a one star Amazon review seem preferable, doesn't it? It's like, I'll take that over, you know, the worst writer, but. The, the I mean, fact that he's written so many books, I think it's a testament to his character that he pushed through from that. Well, as we've said many times before, you can't please everyone, can you? Yeah. Uh, and, and as Matt said, it probably wasn't intended for him to read because he was going through a mate who had a mate at a publisher or whatever. And it was probably written by someone at the publisher who was kind of young and trying to prove themselves or whatever. Yeah. But that is a swift kick in the nudges, isn't it? I mean, you, that is... Um, uh, but you, you, I, I'm sure, though, I don't want to speak for Matt here, but, you know, I, I've uh, I've had reviews like that, you know, where people say this is the worst thing ever. Never goes away. You know, again, you're never going to no. please everyone. So it has no. to be water off a duck's back after a while, you know. It's um, practicing for pushing it onto them rather than owning it yourself. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, the, yeah. it's their world, yeah, right? It's yeah, exactly. It's how they see the world. But yeah. but it could actually, and, 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 you know, the reason why this is really important to focus on is that there are people out in the world that might have got that email with the first thing they ever put out there, and that mm -hmm. just killed off their, 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 their love of writing. And 
And, and that's a real sadness because we should never stop doing what we love and what we're passionate about just because somebody else doesn't like it. It's a bit like classic case, a really, really easy analogy. It's music. And I always say this to people, like I said, if somebody, someone doesn't like your music, I said, that's okay. That's absolutely fine. Because if you actually said to them, like if you were say you did reggae, for example, and someone said, oh, I can't stand this. It sucks. It's awful. Um, but if you ask them the question, well, what do you like? And they say, well, I like death metal. Then, oh, well, it's bloody obvious. Of course you won't like reggae if you like. And so, you know, we forget that it's actually about taste and it's about people's preferences and people are allowed to have their preferences and the world would yep. be a very boring place if everyone only read thrillers or if everyone well, mm. feels like everyone only reads thrillers but do you know what i mean like being, it'd be a very boring place if people didn't have like all these i mean think of amazon's like sub 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 genres there's yeah. like something for everyone right and yeah. it's okay let's celebrate the diversity let's celebrate the fact that people don't like our books um i know it's weird to say this but let's celebrate the fact because that means we're allowed to write and for people that do love that type of genre because if it were the case that it was we were all vanilla and we only read one thing then we couldn't be writers we couldn't explore what it means to write dinosaur porn or whatever. I was really listening back to back that to episode. episode. That is a that Blast is a deep, from the deep cut I, from the past. Deep there, cut, Mr. folks. <laughs> if you haven't if you haven't listened to season one, you have missed out on so many things. Um, I don't know where that came from. I, li I was listening to like a, I, I was listening to something from years ago, and, and it just made me start laughing. I started talking about dinosaur porn, which was a genre or whatever. But um, <clears throat> so fun stuff but it's it's really important to remember though isn't it that um matt let's talk about his rejection letters because we've heard this so many times successful authors wear rejections as a badge of honor to yeah. the point where they display them on their walls they put them in like fo photo type albums and it's and it's about using the power of driving you forward to say well i don't agree with you Thank you for your opinion, but I don't agree with you. Rather than feeling rejected yeah. and being rejected and owning rejection and stopping writing or stopping believing in yourself as a good writer, like, like let's with, just with, thank with, them for their opinion. With, yeah, and with every rejection, you've dodged a bullet because they were the wrong person. Yeah. They weren't right for you, and that's yeah. fine. That's Imagine you fine. went on a first date with the worst person you could ever imagine living with for the rest of your life. And they didn't, they didn't like say, no, thanks. And they just went, yeah, let's do this. Like, what would your life be like? <laughs> really? So yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got to, you've got to just run with it and love it and say, great, I've got rejection. Another one, another notch on the, uh, on the, on the head post, right? <laughs> okay. Mixed up analogies there, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, my mixed metaphors are on fire this month. Um, Let's also talk about a saying that I love that Matt said. He said, it takes a village to create a book. And I think that's never truer for an indie author. I mean, very much a published author, but like when you're being an indie author, you are like the mayor of that village, aren't you? You're the mayor of the town that's having to like corral oh, well, everyone. Whatever, whatever way you publish, it's, it yeah. takes a team. Absolutely takes a team. I mean, a I mean, Matt, in children's books, when you're going through a traditional publisher, you know, you've got editors and illustrators and designers and you've got, you know, 
all kinds of people pitching in and you've got international publishers and editors as well. Uh, but again, if you're self-pubbing, you need to have a good team around you providing all the you know the feedback and perspective and all that kind of thing. Anyone who thinks you're going out there and doing this completely on your own, um, you're kind of setting yourself up for a lot of work uh, and um, you, know, you could be setting yourself up for a a very hard time ahead. So yeah, in, in, yeah. embrace uh, the team around you and, and get them all on board. And it, it, I appreciate some of it might cost money, which you might not have. But then we we know lots of indie authors who have reciprocal arrangements with beta readers and alpha readers and editors and all that kind of thing. Mm. So um, you know, it's uh, it's all possible. But yeah, yeah. it is. Um, this doesn't have to be. The writing can be lonely, but it doesn't mean that the publishing has to be lonely. Yeah. Now you've worked in publishing for many, many years. Would you say that the team for a children's writer is probably the the largest or most complex compared to say the team centered around someone saying writing a thriller, like an adult thriller? Possibly. I think the the where it gets really complicated is with things like cookery books. Cause that is that is a small art, you know, because you 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 have all sorts you you'll have the the chef at the center of it, but you also have someone who tests the recipes, photographers, you know, all sorts of other people working on that, that are designers mm. and um, th- that those, you know, those big full color celebrity chefs books don't, you know, puff out of nowhere. You know, <laughs> that takes all, yeah, that, that is a real, that. that's a real production job. That wow. is um, children's books. I think, cause you've got the illustration thing as well. And, yeah. and, uh, You've got people with very specific skill sets there uh, contributing to that. Yeah, that is, is. I think it. If you've got illustrations involved and finishes and on the cover and and things like um, sound effects on the ebook, uh, you know, all of that stuff is um, that's a big production number for sure. Yeah, and I wonder if that's why maybe being an indie children's author is harder to some extent because you've you've not you know it's not just about finding an editor; it's also about maybe finding an illustrator and going through a number of illustrators until you get the vision. Um, whereas I think when you go with a traditional publisher, they often will say, I mean, They'll my assumption up. is, as they say, look, yeah. we've got this great illustrator and they pair you up and it's like, you yeah. kind of roll with it. Um, yeah. So it's fascinating. So uh, I know there's probably a lot of children's right. I think there's a children's book in everyone as well. I've always felt that I felt no matter what age you are, no matter what you write, I think a lot of people, there's always a children's book um, especially when you become a parent as well, I think that becomes a really strong thing. Like yes, but don't, don't don't make the mistake of thinking that it's easy. I think children's no. books are much harder to write than books for yeah. kids. Kids will not take any crap. They, yeah. they can see they will see through you. It's a great equaliser, isn't it? In oh, many yeah. ways, I think if you can be a successful children's writer, you can write anything, right? right. Whereas uh, if you've never written for children, it's a whole other other world and i think as well people think oh it's it's less words um and it's and it's kind of like watered down but you're but it's not that is it it's like you've you, you, it's like every word counts every, every word, counts. word counts and and yeah. you know he uh you know he, he was talking about um testing the font testing the the uh the layout the design the typeface uh you know you've got kids who are as he said between the ages of seven and eleven there's a vast difference in uh, reading ability and what they might 
what they might want from it. And children, you know, some uh, are dyslexic. And again, dyslexic isn't this monolithic thing where, mm. you know, it's the same for everyone. It's different for every child. So uh, it's, you know, by its very nature, you have to, um, you have to be willing to try out all these different things and experiment with these different ideas when writing for children. It's mm. um, it, I, it's it's the toughest gig in town, I think. It is. I know, I know, I know, I know that writers in every genre and category think they are the worst done by <laughs> because you speak to crime authors, oh, we haven't got romance authors, but I think children's authors probably have more reason to gripe. Um, than than writers in any other category, and again, we'll come to that in the extended version. We will, and 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 just to flip that though, on the counter to that, there's the most reward I think as well. You know, mm. when you see a child's eyes light up, or they're talking about a book that's that, that about their favourite writer, I think you know there's a huge huge reward as well. That's why people do it because you know it's incredible to. I just, I don't know why. We're going to talk about Roald Dahl in the extended, but I was thinking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory today. And just this magical feeling I had when I was reading that book, like the illustrations and just, I like, as but as a child, like just disappearing into that world. And I just reconnected with that feeling a couple of days ago when I was reading about Roald Dahl in the news. And um, so let's talk about that in the extended. And if you would like to join us in the extended, um, we're going to also talk about uh, the challenge of expensive printing, like when are too many pages, too many pages in your published mm -hmm. book. We're going to talk about from a uh, writing for children. We're also going to talk about writing for parents or adults too. And we're also going to deep dive on something really important, which is relevant to every single author, whether you're a children's author or otherwise. Who are you trying to please? We're going to, we're going mm. to jam around that for a while. Um, and then I've got a question for Mark about ebooks and sound effects because I didn't even realize that was a thing. So Mark's apparently going to, he's going to tell me all about that. So if you're interested in any of that, and just as a mini bonus, by listening to the extended podcast, you are supporting this podcast, which means we can keep doing this and bringing you more of this stuff. So um, even if it's just to, to, to help the podcast out, help us pay for the editors and the show and, and keep bringing this to you each week, please, please subscribe to us. You can do that by going to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And um, if you're going to join us in the extender, we'll see you on the other side. Well, if you've, uh, if you just skipped the, extended you have missed out on a very interesting discussion oh my gosh rolled up yeah if you if you've got any interest in in children's books if you've got interest about censorship if you've got interest about making sounds with ebooks um the cost of producing books we've just covered it all in like about 30 40 minutes so do join join the extended but mark let's dive in what's been happening on social media this week i've got some lovely stuff on social media this week so steve gowland who's a member of the BXP team on Facebook and a long-time supporter of the podcast. Because every weekend, every Sunday, we have a little roundup of uh, what have you been doing, what you got coming up next week. And Steve said, I've been busy. He said uh, 8,372 words in a little over a week and had huge fun writing today. The most enjoyable thing is I have two new fictional characters added to the story, a pair of shopkeepers both called Mark. Yes, you guessed it. In the next big writing trend for 2023, exclusive to the BXP community, the two Marks, Stay and DeVoe, are living, breathing characters in my latest book. I can't no tell you what part they play, but they appear in Chapter 5, imaginatively titled The Great Bollocking. <laughs> 
and it's like a game of bestseller experiment easter eggs and bingo the oh book my is gosh. called the book is called delusions and dragons and won't be out until may so you'll have to wait till then i wonder what they'll do next well uh, have, steve have, have... <laughs> our lawyers are on standby that's all i'm saying no, i say go for it I, I think it's brilliant what i mean is this the first time we've ever been actually fictionalized in a book? I know we've had, I know we've had characters based on us. I remember I was the, I was the hunk, wasn't I? I was the romance. <laughs> Do you remember that in a romance novel? I was really yeah. chuffed with that. I was like, there was, um, but I think this is the first time we've actually been fully blatantly fictionalized and bring it on. I think that's brilliant. Like uh, we, it, it, this should become a thing. In okay, every listener of the bestseller experiment, you've got to somehow drop a bestselling experiment or two marks kind of reference Easter egg in your book. You did it in your movie, Mark. I was in stitches. <laughs> You'd said to me something about. I mean, here I'm sitting. I'm sitting in Leicester Square, folks, watching the <laughs> premiere opening night of Unwelcome the movie absolutely excited as anything to be watching this film that's finally come out it's like it's like a proper movie it's not even like some some like you know ropey old indie movie that's been this is like proper movie soundtrack drone footage of Ireland, amazing cast apart from one um and absolutely brilliant brilliant people and 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 mark has dropped in no spoilers what no spoilers. No, no spoilers. I'm not going to say what it is. But no. I'm saying to people, if you if you love this podcast, you have to go and watch this movie because I I there was moments, Mark, where I was bursting out laughing and people were looking at me going, Yeah. Why, why did yeah. he find that funny? And I just thought, <laughs> I can't believe that you've communicated to me sitting there in this cinema, in this big movie. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. No spoilers, but if you love this podcast, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, and I'm talking like more than a few weeks, basically, and you've got to know who we are uh, in our characters, uh, go see the movie and um, and see if see how many you can spot. That's all I'm going to say. Absolutely brilliant. I'm amazed I got some of those through, actually. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, and then we've got a lovely bit of news from Tanya Scott. Uh, who in the same roundup said when you're genuinely so busy you forgot to announce a new book out this week so her new book <laughs> is The up. Invisible Woman which is the wronged women's cooperative and it's the book two in that series which is just fantastic and it's two unidentified bodies one from 20 years ago one from today both buried in the same place who is responsible and that's under the name T.E. Scott so congrats on putting that out there it's fantastic. absolutely brilliant Tony. congratulations and then well, we got a poetry corner moment, haven't we? We we, uh, we had an email because you asked for poems. Didn't I did you? ask for poems, yeah. And, and I was dismissively saying, "Well, it's difficult to become a bestseller if you, you know, to be a poet. It's really, really hard." So Sarah Zyman got in touch, uh, and um, her poem "Rumors" has been highly commended in the Caterpillar Poetry Prize, uh, which is wonderful news. But it's just it just seemed perfect with Matt's episode this week with uh, you know children's fiction and Roald Dahl and everything. So um, Sarah sent us this poem and she's given us permission to read it out on the, uh, on the podcast. And this is just wonderful. So this is Rumours by Sarah Zyman. They're crossing our class from the front to the back. I heard it from Amit. He heard it from Jack. He heard it from Martha, who then told Shanice, who told it to Patience, best friends with Patrice. Patrice then told Hannah, who said to Adele, The Storks paid a visit to Mrs. Patel. 
I wondered to Eddie, a stork has been seen? Is that like a heron? But what does it mean? Eddie just shrugged and whispered to Jake, who then told the lunch queue, it's not a mistake. You can ask anyone. That's what I heard. Poor Mrs. P was attacked by a bird. What bird? An eagle? Could it be her pet? I heard a crocodile. I saw the vet. She fought off a tiger. I heard she bought three. I know the story. No, listen to me. Everyone shouting a hullabaloo. Mrs. Patel left to open a zoo. A laugh from our teacher. Her name is Miss Trent. And she came to teach us when Mrs. P went. Good heavens, children, what is it you've heard? Fighting with tigers attacked by a bird? There's no need for worry, no cause for alarm. Her baby arrived. She's come to no harm. A lovely sweet baby, no claws and no beak. Delivered quite safely the end of last week. Let's clear up these rumours and make lovely cards to send our good wishes and fondest regards. Delivered, mused Martha. And here in no time, the baby was ordered from Amazon Prime. Her name is Alexa. My aunt saw the van. Well, my uncle knows the delivery man. <laughs> Brilliant. Sarah, that is absolutely fantastic. If you, if you want uh, more of Sarah's poetry, which is just absolutely delightful, uh, do check out her, her, her website, uh, sarahzyman.co.uk. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can check that out. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing that with that us. That was absolutely brilliant. That, great, that made great way day. to end the podcast. It's fantastic. Great way. Absolutely, absolutely folks. So, folks, thank you so much. And uh, if you would like to get in contact with us, there's many different ways, which Mark is going to tell us. Yes, okay. you can uh, Yeah, go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. That's how Sarah got in touch with us. Uh, you can go to Facebook, which is Bestseller Experiment, or Twitter and Instagram is at BestsellerXP. Uh, and if you've enjoyed the show, subscribe, rate, give us a review, uh, You know, tell your friends, stop random people in the street, anything that will get people listening. And uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you as always to our editors, Dave and JD. Absolutely. And if you would like to create the habit of a lifetime, don't forget the 200 word challenge. Sarah actually told us that the 200 word challenge has been a massive help to her um, in terms of getting her focusing on her writing as well. So we're great to hear that feedback as well. So join the merry band of many, many, many people who are currently banking their words every day. Uh, and you can do that by going to 200wordchallenge.com, 200wordchallenge.com. And we will say this, but if you'd like to join Mark and I in the Academy and have us as your coaches, then pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com to find out more. Mr. Stay, a very happy birthday week for you. A very happy you. 50th year for you or 51st year. That's always a bit that throws me. Oh, You're actually only done the 50th year. I know, right? Um, but very happy returns. Many, many more trips around the sun to you. And to what everyone does else. That mean? What, does, what does many happy returns mean? Returns around the sun is a year. Is it? Yeah, apparently. I, when I heard about it, I thought, interesting. See, Someone I worked in publishing. Retur returns are a bad thing. Returns <laughs> no, are when the books exactly. don't, don't sell. Want, they're never they, happy returns. They go back they're to be pulped. Yeah. Smoke damaged or they haven't <laughs> sold. But um, if you are having a birthday this week, a very happy birthday to you. And if you've just had a birthday as well, congratulations. And um, and embrace embrace that year, that extra year that you've now got to enjoy and celebrate life. And thank you so much for celebrating life with us on this podcast. And until next week, folks, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Bye.